Rachel Bovard. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben from Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Um, we have a lot to talk about today. Um, we're roughly a week out from election. So we're going to start with um, coverage of, of a lot of the debates that have been going on. I'm going to talk about the the, tra- <laughs> the tragedy or cover up of uh, the Fetterman candidacy. And then we're going to talk also about just general observations from a lot of the midterm debates that have been going on. Um, Ben's going to talk about Dems doubling down on some trans issues. And then Emily's going to talk about sort of the chaos around Ukraine and how the Democrats are handling that, um, which should be a good time. So, so with that, I will turn to myself to talk about uh, John Fetterman. So we're recording this the morning after uh, Fetterman debated uh, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, the one and only time they will debate. And I think anyone who watched that debate will understand why uh, there was only one debate and it was pushed so late uh, into the election cycle because good grief. Uh, John Fetterman, as as everyone is aware, suffered a stroke in May. So it's been less than six months since the man suffered a stroke. He suffered a stroke before the Democratic primary, yet somehow uh, decided he would still participate in that. Um, you know, we've we were discussing kind of before we started recording that perhaps he should have stepped away uh, before you know agreeing to do this because in in another universe, if Connor Lamb had had won that uh, primary debate, he could very well be running away with the Senate seat right now in Pennsylvania, but he did not. John Fetterman persisted. And I think what was really obvious was how much of a failure journalists have been in lay just laying bare uh, how much Fetterman has struggled or is struggling on the campaign trail. And I don't mean this in, an, in a pejorative way. The man had a stroke. Uh, it is obviously a tragedy. Uh, and it is difficult. I think that was my immediate takeaway when I started watching the debate last night was it was just painful, you know, and we've seen this on a number of occasions with Joe Biden, you know, how painful it's been to sort of watch him age in person and watch the struggles of aging, uh, you know, on a national level, on a national stage. But obviously that should raise questions about your capacity to serve in these elected positions. You know, I got into this debate debate last night, probably ill-advised Twitter debate with a doctor about this last night on Twitter. And this doctor works with aphasia patients and aphasia obviously being the difficulty with, um, you know, cognitive uh, processing and speech that can follow a stroke. This is what John Fetterman is suffering. And he said, I would never tell my aphasia patients they couldn't be senators. And my response is that not, the, the issue is not that he cannot be a senator ever. (laughs) <laughs> the issue is that he is obviously still recovering uh, from a neurological problem, and you cannot balance uh, the the responsibilities and painfulness and physical difficulty of recovery with representing the voters of Pennsylvania. One of those things is going to suffer, and if we, you know, in, in your humanity should give you pause here to say, why are you not focusing on your recovery? But the flip side of that is, you know, so much of the criticism that is now being leveled at Mehmet Oz and everybody else is how dare you criticize Fetterman? It is ableist to criticize Fetterman. He obviously has a disability. And it's like, no, if you are going to put yourself in the arena in this condition, then your condition and your capacity to serve is up for debate. So it's it's just the weakening of our uh, political debate and the weakening of journalists being able to even talk about it. And then when we've, when they're finally exposed for not covering the Fetterman state that he's in, you know, yelling at everyone for being an ableist, I just think is, is 
were in rough shape. Um, you know, Dasha Burns with NBC, I think was the only one who really brought this to light, you know, and, and I think with a relatively mild critique of her interview with Fetterman saying he relied a lot on closed captioning, which he also had at the debate last night. You saw those two massive screens so he could read the questions. And for bringing this up, there was a, you know, blue check dog pile on her. So, you know, so much of politics is theater and a lot of it is has a Pachemkin village quality to it, but I think we've reached a new, new level with the Fetterman candidacy. So, uh, you know, I'd open it up kind of on, on that level, the state of journalism and covering this stuff and the in-kind donations. I think a lot of these journalists made to the Fetterman campaign and not revealing this sooner, but also, you know, I would, I would point to, you know, we're, we're pushing, the Democrats are pushing geriatrics and stroke victims, <laughs> onto the stage as their preferred party candidates. And I think that's a little scary as well. So I, I have a few things to say about right off the top here. I guess the first thing, because again, we are recording this the morning after the debate, that debate was astonishing. I, I mean, I think the four of us are all political junkies and I've watched a lot of political debates, primaries, general elections and whatnot. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. In, in fact, I know that I have never seen anything like that because it, you could not be a remotely neutral observer and watch what the four of us watched last night and come away feeling good about the prospect of United States Senator John Fetterman, like one of the most 100, you know, esteemed legislators and what was once considered the world's foremost legislative deliberative body. I mean, it, it, it was sad. I mean, like we should emphasize that, you know, we are people of compassion. I mean, you know, NACON certainly stands for compassion and all that. And like, it was very sad to watch here, but I think the compassion necessarily has to be a little limited, at least in this particular case, because the stroke actually happened, unless I'm gravely mistaken, before the Democratic primary, before the Democratic Senate primary in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania earlier this year. Now, a selfless, more altruistic person and if it sounds like I'm imputing John Fetterman's character a little bit, I am imputing John Fetterman's character a little bit. I think a more selfless, altruistic person would have dropped out at that point. They actually, you know, far, far be it from me to try to speak for the Democrats, but they had a a, a plausible alternative in Connor Lamb. So I, I I think a lot of people should be asking those kind of questions to the extent that they're not already. Why did Fetterman not drop out? Like why, and I, you know, Rachel obviously has covered the media and I'll kind of leave to, to, to Emily and, and Ben to cover that aspect of it as well a little bit more, but it was just truly astonishing watching what we watched last night. There was one question about fracking and apparently he was anti-fracking and then he was pro-fracking. I, I had, to, I was watching it on YouTube. I was streaming. I, I, I clicked back. I was like, did that just go down the way I thought it would. And it's very difficult for us on this on this podcast to try to kind of communicate to the listeners and viewers if you, if you have not listened and ideally watched this yourself. But he just, he, he literally cannot finish sentences. I mean, it was robotic and it was kind of like the algorithm just kind of broke down, the cyborg broke down and malfunctioned when the moderator, and then kind of when Dr. Oz was giving his closing statement, he just shouts out in the middle of it, like you lied or something. What was it about climate change or something like that? Or fracking? I can't even remember what it was he about. He said, you, you want to cut social security. Oh, social security, my bad. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, but like, I, like, what, like what the actual hell? So it, it was just an astonishing performance. The only thing that I'll add quickly here, because I want to leave Ben and Emily time, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the red wave. I, I wrote a column recently, uh, just last week, actually, about the red wave. And that, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit on the next segment of this podcast as well. One interesting question that I got when I did Seth Leapson's radio show out in Phoenix, Arizona last Friday was Seth asked me, you know, uh, I, he basically said, I, I, I largely agree with you that a red wave seems to be forming right now, but 
if this is the case, you know, why is Dr. Oz not running away with this in a swing state like Pennsylvania when the Democratic nominee is this severely flawed? You know, the predicted odds tended to shift after last night's debate. So we'll see if that continues. I personally feel pretty good about Oz's chances right now, but just some food for thought here, I think. I think one answer to that question is the polling. Um, I think we we just have such a, a hazy glimpse at where public opinion stands in some of these states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, sort of at the top of the list. On that note, though, I do think this is the, the Fetterman Oz debate is first and foremost a media story, plainly. There's uh, obviously I think the the people of Pennsylvania uh, didn't really learn much that they they already didn't know uh, last night in the debate. So I think it's important to focus on how the media was uh, suddenly springing into action, talking about ableism, um, criticizing Federman's um, detractors as ableists, even very mild criticism from the likes of Joe Scarborough, who said it was a painful debate to watch. He's branded an ableist. Um, it was just sort of all across the board. And, you know, you had some people in the media saying, yeah, like we, th this has been really hard to watch. And Josh Kroshauer over at Axios had a report about his sources in the Democratic Party saying what a nightmare it was. We all know how John Fetterman would have been treated for this entire campaign if he were a Republican. We all know how the 50% of people roughly that plan to vote for John Fetterman as of right now would be treated if he were a Republican. And that's even a more important aspect of the story. It's basically the Democrats flight 93 calculus, right? Like John Fetterman may not um, have the reading and comprehension skills anymore, unfortunately, because of the tragedy that, that hit him at a terrible time, um, we would expect of a senator. But people around him are going to tell him to vote the right way, thus vote for John Fetterman. We have seen Republicans make versions of that calculus, never, I think, this severely with somebody like impaired to the effect of John Fetterman. But hey, this person is going to vote the right way. So that's how I'm going to vote. And the media just absolutely devours them for making that decision because uh, character and, um, you know, ability and all of these things are so essential. And I think I, I, in an ideal world, that's absolutely true. But to act like our politics is always happening in this fantasy vacuum land where, um, you know, it's Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's just like absurd. Um, and, and the media covering for months, John Fetterman, go to Barry Weiss's sub stack. I'll leave Ben some time to weigh in. Um, but look at what everybody who's interviewed Fetterman, Kara Swisher, uh, Rebecca Traster, look at what they have said for months. Uh, they have said that John Fetterman was in much better shape than everybody got to witness for themselves last night. And that tells you what kind of false reality they create and how easily it is for them to create it. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that the false reality they created really comports well with what Fetterman's own media flack said on Twitter last night following the debate. And I'll quote directly here. Tonight, John Fetterman showed that he's going to fight for everyone in PA who's gotten knocked down and had to get back up. John effing, and he spelled this out, took it to sleazy Dr. Oz tonight, and the people of PA saw that. That was where his media flack was, but the difference or the distinction between that and what the actual media was saying, not much across the board. And I think, you know, worth noting, Dasha Burns, basically her journalistic thought crime was actually reporting her honest observation in dealing with Fetterman. That can't be permitted by our Russiagate promoting media. They never pay a price for it. Uh, but that's because they're all protecting 
their own, their own regime, essentially. And it's worth noting, of course, that you know Joe Biden ran the hermetically sealed presidential campaign that paved the way for the Federmans of the world. What kind of disrespect does it show to the public that they shield these people from any scrutiny whatsoever? Also, what does it say about the Democrat establishment in Pennsylvania and Fetterman's own family that they put him out there like this? I think there's something kind of sick and twisted about that as well. And lastly, I mean, not that I think it's even worth entertaining the ableist argument. You know, this is clearly they can't defend what everyone saw with their own eyes. So they have to call people calling it out bigots. But, you know, is it discriminatory for firemen to have like a physical regime that they have to pass physical standards that they have to pass or for fighter pilots to have certain vision standards? The entire job of a U.S. senator is to debate, to consider legislation to persuade to cajole that's the entire job and if you're not mentally competent to do it then what are you doing running for the u.s senate i think it's pretty obvious all right so let's transition to a very closely related topic which is i kind of want to just talk about or set the stage for a conversation about i should say uh, what's happening in these debates in general as we kind of inch closer towards this midterm election i, I was kind of thinking back this morning actually before we start recording this episode, we launched this show, if I'm not mistaken, uh, early 2021. So this is actually the first kind of federal election that we're covering on this show. So it's worth kind of just, you know, spending a few segments uh, on this. So one thing that kind of leaps to the top of mind for me, and I think I saw Eric Erickson, who lives in the state of Georgia, tweeting or writing about this in some form, was when it comes to, to John Fetterman, the same people that for months and months have been saying, hush, hush, pay no attention to the fact that this guy had a stroke, pay no attention to the fact that he's kind of only doing interviews on closed captioning with NBC, the New York Times, MSNBC, whatever. The same folks who were doing that over and over again have been talking about how, how Herschel Walker is clearly unfit for office down in Georgia based on his various own mental illnesses. Now, Herschel Walker is, uh, you know, he he's an interesting candidate. I mean, he obviously has like a, a good amount of kind of personal baggage. There's no point in any of us downplaying that this, um, you know, this abortion story is obviously complex and and and, and horrible. Uh, but you can't get away from the fact that, you know, I mean, what's good for the goose is certainly is certainly good for the gander. And I guess one thing also on the Herschel Walker thing that comes immediately to mind for me was the one debate, the one debate that Herschel Walker had with Raphael Warnock, it was you know, within the past one and a half, two weeks or so, Herschel Walker did really well. I mean, the blue chat kind of blue anon mafia on Twitter was, you know, basically saying after the debate, you know, like Herschel did like a little better than we think. I mean, like he did actually like shockingly well in that debate. And the polls are starting to show Herschel Walker, I think, inching ahead of Raphael Warnock in that particular race. But from a strategy perspective, I think Warnock only agreed to one race there. And that's kind of the broader point that I want to make here is I think a lot of what the Democrats have done as far as the, the debates this cycle are concerned, as far as trying to only have one debate, agree to one debate, whether it's John Fetterman, whether it's Raphael Warnock down in, down in Georgia, in Arizona, Mark Kelly only agreed to one debate with Blake Masters, if I'm not mistaken, Katie Hobbs has agreed to zero debates with Carrie Lake. This strategy seems to me to be backfiring and backfiring pretty badly in virtually all of those races that I just flagged. Pennsylvania Senate, Georgia Senate, Georgia Gov, Arizona Senate, Arizona Gov. It seems like the Republican candidate's position right now is somewhere between better and considerably better, at least in the case of Pennsylvania Senate, um, right now than it was one month ago. 
And I, I, I think I think it's worth kind of asking questions as to like why were the Democrats trying to play this card? Is this kind of just downstream of the fact that Joe Biden is so catastrophic, catastrophically unpopular? Or they didn't want more candidates to have stage time to have to kind of defend his various suite of unpopular policies and various mistakes. And I, just one other thing, you know, to kind of open up to conversation here. So I was actually at the Florida gubernatorial debate on Monday night in, in Fort Pierce, Florida. It was the one and only debate between Ron DeSantis and Charlie Crist. Just a couple of kind of personal observations that I had from being there in the in the Sunrise Theater, I think was the name of the venue. So it was really kind of shocking to be there, actually, because what happened was they told us to be in our seats by 6.30 p.m. for a 7 p.m. start. At 6.30 p.m., I would say the Charlie Crist third to half of the theater was maybe like 25, 30% full. The DeSantis people were already in there. We were kind of on our side. We were, we were orderly. And then like 20 minutes before the debate started, this whole barricade of like pro-abortion t-shirt wearing people, um, you know, the don't say gay mafia, those kind of people just started filling in. And they were beyond obnoxious. They were like they were literally shouting and yelling and trying to like shout down the governor's uh, talking points. And apparently, I, I I haven't like read a full article about this yet. But what we heard after the debate was that the Charlie Chris campaign basically bust in Broward County Teachers Union people because they could not fill the venue with their own supporters. And you know, sure enough, right out of the gate in that debate, Charlie Chris' first answer, even though the, the moderator asked him a question about the economy and inflation, jobs. He starts talking about abortion, and every single time in that freaking debate, he would just come back to abortion. And I, I, I have to imagine that what was going on here, and I'll kind of just open up to you guys on this very open-ended note. I, I think what's trying to happen is these various Democratic candidates are trying to just kind of recapture that like blip in the radar of that post-Dobbs magic. They have like a maybe three to four-week stretch where kind of the post-Dobbs backlash looks like it might actually be real. But at this point, it seems to be kind of just a blip in the radar. But that's kind of just a rambling segment for me but if you guys have any thoughts go ahead yeah i still think it's worth uh i guess acknowledging that part of the reason they think that they should be running on abortion 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 is because of turnout and uh, in really close elections like what they're expecting uh probably not in florida but in uh, pennsylvania or wisconsin or elsewhere um that's a sign to me they think they just need to move the needle um, on, you know, getting, they actually might be worried about Democrats not being excited about their giving candidate. Um, you know, Tony Eber is probably a pretty good example in Wisconsin um, on that note. And and Charlie Crist, uh, probably a good example, not somebody who's super, super popular with the progressive um, activist class. Uh, so I, I get why they have that reflex, but it's not helpful to them at all. And now they're trying to pivot and to walk and chew gum at the same time, at the very least, instead of just walking and, and just talking about abortion, they're trying to do both at the same time so that they can motivate people to come out. Um, but what they didn't ante anticipate was Republicans who, whatever you think about Carrie Lake, have flipped the script on them um, and have learned in the Trump era to not take the abortion point, not take the abortion question on defense, and to say, uh, actually, why doesn't why doesn't Katie Hobbs tell us what restrictions she supports on abortion? Um, because uh, most of America is in the middle 
on abortion, but most of America is deeply, deeply, deeply opposed to late-term abortion. Um, and it, you can definitely move the needle that way. So I, I don't think Dems were expecting that on abortion. I don't think they were expecting the economy to still be in such a bad place in abortion, which is partially why they passed that huge piece of spending that they passed, um, because they just have not been clear-eyed about the threat of inflation and the threat of the economy. Um, and that's why they can't run on economic populism. I was just talking to Ryan Graham on our show about this. Um, um, the other day, like, why aren't Democrats running on a platform against you know, major corporations that are price gouging, et cetera, et cetera, whatever you think of that argument, why aren't they running on it? Because they're the party of the Chamber of Commerce now. They legitimately can't run on that. Um, it's laughable. They would piss off their donors. Um, and it's just, it's simply not where they are anymore. So they can't even talk about the economy. And um, of course, all of the media attention is on Republican infighting when they clearly have their own bigger fish to fry uh, in the Democratic Party as well. You just don't hear peeps about it. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch them pivot to abortion because they literally have nothing else. You know, you're always trying as on a campaign, you're always trying to make an existential argument about why, you know, you are the person that has to stand up and stop whatever crisis is coming. Republicans have, you know, crisis du jour every day from this administration. And it's very kitchen table stuff. It's economics, it's inflation, it's schools, it's things people care about. Democrats can't don't have a good answer on any of that because it's their guy causing it. So they just cling to abortion and it's not and it's not working. And, and even, you know, for that issue to even be effective to them, to Emily's point, you would have to moderate slightly. And they all refuse to because they're beholden to this super left-wing part of their base. And you saw this on the Warnock-Walker debate when Warnock was flat out asked, what you know restrictions do you support? And he just gave a, a word salad answer that never contained an actual answer. And then he remind us, reminded us all that he was a pastor. But what was fascinating about that debate as well, and perhaps why I think Democrats have been so shy to debate sort of MAGA style candidates, it kind of goes back to the person of Trump and, and the Trump-Hillary debate. Trump threw out the rule book, right? Every debate up until then, and I think since, you know, before that point, had a, a set of rules about how you were supposed to debate and the type of candidate you were supposed to be and how are you supposed to present yourself. That went out the window with Trump and no one has seemed to figure it out on the left. Like the Warnock-Walker debate was encapsulated that phenomenon because you saw Warnock deeply uncomfortable. I don't think the dude smiled once the entire debate, he's trying to debate Walker as if he's like another politician and Walker's just not that, right? And he showed up and he was happy and he was seemed like he was enjoying himself. He had some great lines about abortion when he was like, uh, when, you know, when Warnock was like, it's a woman and her doctor, you know, in the delivery room and, and Walker was like, there's also a baby, right? <laughs> so, you know, I just think they, they're, this cycle is so bad that they would rather just run from every issue than actually have to debate in person. And I think it's going to hurt them in the end, but I want to save time for Ben here. Yeah, no, I think it's a great observation. There's been almost no upside for Democrats to debate in part because I think that that's an inadvertent acknowledgement, if not explicit acknowledgement that on the merits, all the issues that people care about are losing ones for them. Yes, certainly they tried to make abortion the issue, thinking that that would motivate uh, those who might be otherwise be on the sidelines. But I think it was telling even the Oz Fetterman debate, Fetterman came off, you know, to the extent he had a cogent response on abortion uh, in a very defensive manner. I thought he basically said, you know, I want Roe. That was the entirety of his answer. When Oz tried to push him on, OK, so you believe in no restrictions, you know, you believe in infanticide. He didn't really have any answer to it. 
And, and I think that that sort of argument does resonate. And we've seen some polling indicating that it resonates with people. So the push to abortion backfired. The initial push of like January 6th and our opponents are fascists and insurrectionists. They've pretty much given up on that as well. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there's been substantial early voting in some of these states already. One of the reasons it shouldn't exist in the first place. Uh, but I think it says it all that Democrats see no advantage in debating. And I think Fetterman, the fact that he did choose to debate here might represent a last ditch effort because the internal polling was just that bad that they felt they needed that Hail Mary, uh, one potential read on it. Uh, but I guess on that note, we'll transition, uh, and I use that word no pun intended here, to myself uh, to talking about another issue that somehow I guess Democrats thought was worth throwing against the wall in the final days of the midterm races, which is that of so-called gender-affirming care. That is providing minors with therapies or procedures up to and including hormone therapies, puberty blockers, and this is, you know, sort of the euphemistic terms that they use for these treatments, up to and including then double mastectomies, uh, removal of genitalia, replacement of genitalia for under 18-year-olds. That's what we're talking about here. And Joe Biden, for whatever reason, decided to participate in an interview, which in part included a, I guess, notable trans activist. And I want to pull up the transcript here. The trans activist says, do you think states should have a right to ban gender affirming health care? And Biden replies, I don't think any state or anybody should have the right to do that as a moral question and as a legal question. I just think it's wrong. Now, Joe Biden, in my view, has always been a pure politician. He bends wherever the progressive winds, I guess, now blow. But the fact that, first of all, his staff put him up for this interview and then basically, I think, instructed him to give that answer. Or he thought that that would be the answer that resonates. I think that's remarkable because as Chris Riffo and others have shown, this is like an 80-20 question. And frankly, it should be more than 80-20 for the American people in terms of mutilating kids under 18 years old. And, and the state has no interest in that question. Uh, what's remarkable about this, we should note, though, is that if you look on the books of the states, there are only four states that have legislation that in whole or in part restricts, quote unquote, gender affirming care. And the most stringent restrictions on it in Arkansas and Alabama are both facing litigation. Uh, one of those cases is, I believe, uh, underway right now. And the other, I believe, starts next month. Worth noting, of course, that the Department of Justice has been weaponized in the gender affirming care jihad. They went after Alabama Eagle Forum, which is merely a nonprofit activist group that promoted the legislation in Alabama that made it a felony to perform gender affirming care, so-called, on minors, uh, and basically issued this subpoena calling for everything around their advocacy for years on this issue. They were smacked down in the court, that is the DOJ, and effectively that subpoena was quashed. Uh, the judge was kind of astonished at what the DOJ was asking for and how intimidating and chilling it was. But it's also worth noting this gender affirming care push, and we should note California put out the, and passed now the first in its nation so-called trans refuge state legislation. That's also been put up in New York and a slew of other states as well. They're basically arguing that it's child abuse. Uh, if you dare prevent so-called gender affirming care, you have a small number of red states who are taking the opposite view that it's actually child abuse to put forth such care. 
Uh, but worth noting that the rest of the world sees this differently. So the National Health Service in Great Britain just issued new guidance and they walked away from gender affirming care. They're going to put restrictions on it, it would appear in Great Britain. And they've basically said, this is a phase for many children, gender dysphoria. So it's crazy to be engaging in these treatments and promoting these sorts of treatments. The U.S. government itself and the Biden administration itself is funding a number of studies right now on potential adverse effects associated with gender affirming care. So there's a report showing that there are 30 studies right now looking at medical concerns around just the puberty, puberty blockers and the hormones, which are viewed as the less invasive of the so-called treatment. So the government itself is essentially admitting it doesn't know what the long-term effects of these treatments are and how devastating they might be to children. So I just think it's remarkable that we see the whole world, and it's not just Great Britain, but other European nations as well, taking the other position on this. You have states beginning to push back, but not enough states, amazingly. I mean, four states in the entire country. And then that the Biden administration would be pushing this in the run-up to the election. And I guess the question is, why would they push this right now? What does it ultimately portend? And what about the issues of parental rights going forward. I mean, I think this is going to be a massive, massive issue. Gender affirming care, maybe this is the most extreme version of the parental rights debate that we're having, but I think it's going to pervade all of these arguments around schools, around medical treatments and beyond going forward. So curious to for your thoughts on this issue as maybe illustrative of a broader set of issues that we're going to be grappling with for you to come. Yeah, I mean... We keep talking about sort of the horrors of this issue, and I, I think rightly so, because you have now the sort of administrative state pushing it forward, right? I like this is the issue that I have when I debate people on the on the right, even about should we engage in the culture war? Does the culture war matter? Well, the culture war is now woven into our government, right? <laughs> like you have the state deciding these very existential critical uh, questions about how children are going to be treated and and what's best for them and inserting themselves between us, uh, you know, kids and their parents. And so, yes, the culture war is a matter of survival at this point when your government is the one enforcing it. You know, these aren't debates that we're just having, you know, in ivory towers and, and in newspapers. This is actual policy. Um, so this stuff matters more than anything else, I think, at this point. And, you know, you saw it also you know, you see on the trans question, you're also seeing it with the CDC recently, the advisory board, right? Saying, oh, we're going to put COVID vaccines on the child immunization schedule and the CDC probably going to accept that. Like, you know, it's the it's the long march of progressivism to some extent coming to its logical end. I think it was, you know, Rousseau back <laughs> who said, you know, that, that children are raised better by the state than their own parents. Like this is actually what you're seeing now in practice. And if the Republicans aren't prepared to push back on this tooth and nail, Every parent should be prepared to end their career because, you know, and and the, their careers in office, because what what use are they? Because this is just so foundational and fundamental. And I think Republicans are seeing now, whether it's sincere or just out of self-preservation, how rich this sort of ground is, um, because you like the and again, I think the, the reason Joe Biden is sitting down and doing an interview like the one he did over the course of the past week uh, with the trans TikToker um, who has some just incredibly awful, awful, offensive posts, um, just terrible. The reason he's doing that is it's, be again, because they want to excite voters that they need for turnout, like Democratic voters. I don't think they have any idea 
um, how that lands with regular Americans yet. I think there are some people uh, that have started to catch on to that third way, James Carville, I think are sort of in the right direction, but they have no idea. Like even them, they don't, even then they don't have a plan because they're locked into this prison where they have uh, legitimized an ideology that says you are either fully progressive or you are a bigot. Um, and that means they can't go back. They can't walk what they've said back because they've told their base, their voters, um, that that would be bigotry. So they're in a real pickle. Um, and I, I think the good news is this is a matter of, of survival. And this is a serious, serious thing that is harming uh, women every single day, every single day. And I think the good news is that Republicans, um, at the very least, now know this is politically uh, beneficial. It's a way to take those moms and dads in Loudoun County who maybe never vote, who have voted Democrat, and, and get them over to actually come to the polls and vote Republican because it is so abhorrent um, what Democrats are doing. So I, I, I think I think there's only sort of good news on that front, on the front of uh, whether Republicans are prepared to, to take on the issue and then introduce legislation, which we've seen in many states too. So I think Ben is right to frame the quote unquote, gender affirming care. I mean, how's that for dystopian or Willian language, by the way? I, I think he's right to kind of frame this as kind of the tip of the spear of the broader parental rights discussion in general. And, you know, it's not like we didn't see this coming. I mean, there's been any number of anecdotal stories in, in Anglophone countries. I mean, Australia, Canada has probably been like the worst about this of CPS, Child Protective Services, going in to kind of seize the kids, the underage minors of, of, of children whose parents will not affirm or ratify or whatever kind of BS euphemistic language the, the various mainstream media apologists are using uh, to kind of basically say that like these parents will will not get on board with the fact that Joe wants to be Jane or vice versa. I, I think it's incumbent upon us to just say explicitly what is going on, right? I mean, the parallel here is to the abortion debate. So the, the entire rhetoric of, of so-called pro-choice I, I mean, they do that for a reason. I mean, it's a it's a euphemistic imperative. I think uh, Rich Lowry, of all people, wrote about this during the the Kermit Gosnell hearings in Philadelphia nine years ago. And it, they say pro-choice, but not pro-abortion, not because they're not pro-abortion. They absolutely are. If anyone's familiar with the whole Catherine Pollard shout your abortion thesis, they are emphatically and explicitly pro-abortion. But they do it because they don't want to actually talk about what is going on. But you know, when pro-lifers and no one's better uh, than Lila Rose of live action, from my perspective on this, start talking about what an, what an abortion actually entails, and you kind of got the ultrasounds and the graphics, and you, know, you literally can change hearts and minds. And I think a similar approach is called for in this particular debate. So, for example, at the Florida gubernatorial debate on Monday, when this topic came up, I mean, Ron DeSantis from the debate stage just started talking about, you know, chemical castration and puberty, uh, you, you know, hormone blocking drugs. He used all the right words. He's very visceral kind of emotion stirring words. And I think we have to do more of that. We, we, we have to talk about what is actually happening when these morons, these woke adult, you know, morally upside down, perverse idiots start talking about, you know, Orwellian garbage, like so-called gender affirming care. So we just need to like actually get away from the euphemisms and talk about what is actually happening here. I think. Um, so with that positive note, we'll transition to our last segment. Um, uh, Emily is going to take us home on Dems in disarray. Everybody's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the media's favorite topic is Republicans in disarray. Uh, and I think they miss some of what's happening right under their noses. Uh, and everyone seems surprised whenever a, a real fissure in the Democratic sort of um, 
coalition bubbles to the surface, but this week that happened in a huge way. Um, and it was actually over funding for Ukraine and peace, negotiate, peace negotiations. Um, really interesting. The Congressional Progressive Caucus uh, sent a letter and in the letter, I believe it was actually to President Biden, um, it, it encouraged uh, peace negotiate, negotiations with Russia, with Ukraine, uh, with all of the involved parties uh, to avert the, the very immediate threat of nuclear war, which could, as the president himself notes, uh, lead to some sort of Armageddon. Um, and the the Congressional Progressive Caucus put that out, was, uh, you know, running with it. And within a day, within a day, they retracted it, um, blamed, Rashida Tlaib blamed, blamed a staffer for publishing it. And uh, they, some of the members like Jamie Raskin actually apologized um, and said essentially that they were wrong. Um, because Putin, you know, they they missed or in their calculus underestimated the degree to which Putin um, doesn't you know, support LGBT rights um, and isn't sort of sufficiently a Western liberal, um, as though that should preclude us from approaching negotiations about a nuclear uh, apocalypse. Um, but it was very vindicating for the position Tulsi Gabbard took uh, to some criticism, to much appropriate, I should say, just a couple of weeks ago when she called the Democratic Party uh, a party of elite an elite cabal of warmongers. Uh, and just within two weeks, they proved that to be completely true um, in, in the most glaring possible way by retracting a letter um, that encouraged peace negotiations. So whatever you think of uh, peace negotiations, which I happen to think um, we, we do need to in this case, like the sad reality is I wish we didn't have to negotiate with hostile states um, that abuse their people and invade other countries um, and do all of the horrible things that Vladimir Putin did. Uh, I, I wish we didn't have to do that. But in a nuclear world and in a nuclear order, we do. That's just the bottom line, um, unless you think all of these lives um, and all of this destruction is going to be worth it. So that's sort of my take on that. Um, but all that is to say, uh, if Democrats can't even, if the progressive wing of the Democratic Party um, has to grovel for making a suggestion like that, we are like, <laughs> we're approaching dangerous territory. I say that if it happens on the right, um, I, I mean, it's all of us have had plenty of criticisms. Um, even Kevin McCarthy last week told Punchbowl that we shouldn't be sending, quote, a blank check to Ukraine um, under his speakership, potential speakership in January, um, because a blank check to Ukraine when people are uh, feeling the pains of inflation and in a recession, um, the public is not going to have an appetite for it. But that's just one of the many reasons not to send a blank check. Uh, but of course, we've sent so much money over there that we're a huge party in the war. We do have a responsibility uh, to work to, to find an end and to not just be in a perpetual state of conflict that is great for defense contractors who make money um, and have an incentive to keep us in a perpetual state of con conflict that they mask with this um, nonsense about you know not being able to negotiate or move an inch. Um, it's just truly, truly incredible. And again, if this were when this happens on the right, the media loves it, eats it up. But I think Democrats have huge problems. Um, you can expect one of the biggest 
broadcasters in the world to talk about this, Joe Rogan. Um, again, another thing that the media just ignores unless they can can jump on him. Um, but this is going out to a lot of people. There are a lot of people who are now going to see what just happened in the Democratic Party. Um, and more importantly, it's very chilling within the ranks of uh, House members. Of course, my lights always go out when I'm talking. Um, but uh, that said, I'll kick it over to the group. What did you guys think about the uh, the the intense sort of conflict over this letter and its retraction? So it cannot be understated, or potentially it cannot be overstated. I'll put it this way: when the establishment that w- and the Pentagon and the intel agencies have made a foreign policy decision, they will brook no dissent. And it cannot be, the point can't be highlighted enough that no member is allowed to depart from that. Like if these members were not even allowed to put out a letter, imagine how this whip is going to go, <laughs> right? Like they, they will they will be forced into a vote what, a certain way, whether they like it or not. And when I was working on the Hill, one of the things I did for one of my bosses uh, was Senator Rand Paul and I handled his foreign relations committee portfolio. He was a member of the committee and we, I would see this up close. I mean, we picked a million legislative fights on a million different issues, but on the defense funding issues, just the, the building fell on your head. You know, if you were one step out of line, it was the Pentagon that would come at you it was the Intel agencies, the, the furious working behind the scenes to shut down any debate or dissent on these issues is it just it's an incredibly powerful force and, and you're seeing it at work right now because remember this wasn't even a vote it was a letter uh so it's the foreign policy consensus in washington is completely driven by the from the top down and to think that any member any member who thinks they can come in and vote independently and nothing will happen to them is 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 kidding themselves so changing that culture on capitol hill requires electing different people, but it also requires preparing them for what's about to hit them because it's a disposition that has to be able to withstand it. it there is no no single issue has the brute force of the foreign policy establishment. Uh, and it's it's we just saw a, a peak behind the curtain this week, but this is how it's going to be uh, on this issue going forward. So uh, one thing that this reminds me of, there was this video from an AOC town hall in the Bronx recently where at least two of her constituents basically start shouting at her like, why are you supporting like the rush to Ukraine? I mean, like what happened to progressivism? I mean, like what happened to kind of like the old school kind of anti-war left? I mean, Saurabh Amari's column for TAC for the American conservative, the American conservative this week actually asks that very question. What happened to the old anti-war left? And you know what? It, it's kind of actually directly related to what Emily was saying, I think, two segments ago, which is the left, the Democratic Party, has now become the Chamber of Commerce Party. I mean, the, the Democrats have become kind of like the blob, the neoliberal, the uniparty party. They are the party of the ruling class, and the Republicans are the party of the deplorables. That is just simply where we are right now. That is just an empirical, basic observation of what is happening in two-party America right now. And the same way that Democrats have have, bec- have adopted the mantle of the Chamber of Commerce and you know its various kind of neoliberal taxation, antitrust regulation, whatever priorities, so too have they adopted kind of the neoliberal priorities of the foreign policy elites of, of you know what Red Rachel and many others have referred to accurately as the blob. And the Ukraine issue just really shines a spotlight on that. And you know, it's it's a very important story. I hope that more people talk about it. Um, look, as far as as far as Ukraine is concerned in particular, and I'll be real quick here because uh, I want to leave time for Ben, 
I, you know, I mean, I've been sounding the alarm for months and months at this point. And my last comment on this generated just absolutely ferocious pushback from the Ukrainian blue-checked mafia. But I mean, uh, the the extent of U.S. complicity in not seeking an off-ramp and trying to get detente and de-escalation at this point is utterly mind-boggling for too much from my perspective, and thoroughly unworthy, thoroughly unworthy of a first-rate global superpower. Um, it is just a complete miscalculation, a complete misallocation of of, of scarce resources at this point, and it's really shameful. Yeah, I, I mean. Far be it for me to put the 30 or so progressive signatories to this letter in a negotiating room with any foreign adversary, but it's really remarkable. Like if you look at the text of the letter, I mean, it's sort of predictable what they're saying. Essentially, they're, you know, they're pro diplomacy as opposed to using military or economic leverage. And in my view, all else being equal, diplomacy only flows from being in a stronger position in all the various material ways. But that said, there's so the way they hedge themselves within the text of the letter is such that it's hard to understand how anyone would really argue against the notion that we ought to try to avoid a nuclear war. And one of the ways that we need that we will ultimately get there will be by negotiating some sort of resolution to this. What is the alternative ultimately? Is the alternative total regime change in Russia, Vladimir Putin being overthrown? Is it a nuclear exchange? And what are the alternatives? Of course, the basic question at the start is, what is in America's national interest and our desire to end state here? Something the administration has never given any clarity on. They've never said kind of where the blank check ultimately ends. And so it's remarkable then when you see Democrats themselves, Democrat House members like Jake Auchincloss, if I'm pronouncing his name right, tweeting, this letter is an olive branch to a war criminal who's losing his war. Ukraine is on the march. Congress should be standing firmly behind Joe Biden's effective strategy, one that he's never defined, including tighter, not weaker sanctions. An olive branch to a war criminal who's losing his war. That's the mainstream moderate Democrat position now. And to some extent, I do wonder, because I always like to point out that when you go back to the Cold War, the actual Cold War, Democrats were where you would find the biggest appeasers for the Soviet Union. It's like, have they tried to so overcorrect that this is the position? I, I don't think that's what it is. Is it in part that they had to buy into their own anti-Trump Russia rhetoric to make Russia the preeminent global threat to America? Maybe that's a part of it. Or is it just that they're, there's other ways that they're literally and figuratively so invested in the anti-Russia cause? And I guess here, ultimately, the Ukraine as grift, Ukraine rebuilding grift that is to come aspect of this. And Ukraine, of course, as, as being the corrupt place that it is, has always been a money generator for much of our political establishment, right and left. Kind of what are the motives behind this? And how is it that this is the position of the median member of the De uh, Democrat party in the house. And obviously it's the uniparty position. I think it's kind of remarkable to witness this uh, in real time. And I think it's also notable that this was pulled at this time. Well, first of all, we would love to know the real palace intrigue behind why this letter came out when it did. And then also the fact that it was pulled in the throes of an election, I think also speaks volumes. So there's a lot to be made here. And I'm sure this won't be the final word on the pushback against the Biden administration's Ukraine policy going forward. Um, so we can start on on final thoughts. Um, you know, I was just going to go back to 
my my segment on Fetterman because I'm just so appalled and it's just like by what we witnessed last night, but more so the fact that we had to, it had to get to that point before we fully understood what was happening. And I would just point out that, you know, John Fetterman, if he's elected, you know, would not be the first senator with mental acuity issues, right? It's the chamber itself is not, the average age is 66. It's not known for its sharp and young and vigorous members. But he, I think, would be the first member elected in that state. Most members that find themselves in that state in the Senate have descended to it well in office. Uh, he he would be the first, I think, with with these issues this pushed to the fore. And I guess that speaks to the broader point of our politics at this point. Like we are really electing warm bodies at this point. You know, we're to the point Emily was making. He's going to vote the right way, and that's enough because he'll be told how to vote. To think that he will have any independent mental. Uh, judgment in that. I think just after witnessing last night, I, I, I think it's a, obvious he will not. Um, I wish him the best in his recovery. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd hope that he would regain a lot of functioning that he doesn't have, but you, it can't be, you don't get to do that well in office. You have a representative role. Um, and I think we're really undermining the notion of self-government by putting people in office who who just simply can't do it. And I just do want to under, underscore the point. It is sad. Um, I, I do think that this isn't, you know, you don't want to spike the football and be like, oh, he was so terrible. He was, it was terrible because it was so difficult to watch. None of us would ever put our family members in that position. Um, so we wish him the best, but uh, gosh, I just hope he finds somewhere quiet to recover and isn't forced to do it in the United States Senate. Well, and again, this is why I think the media element is like, this is, I think one of the most important media stories of the entire year, um, because it shows you exactly what kind of reality they create versus what the reality actually is. And there aren't a lot of opportunities that uh, people have to see uh, just like such a clear contrast between reality and the media's alternate reality. And this one is just crystal clear that when they, you know, when they could spin and they knew that people could couldn't see uh, the, you know, that, that most people wouldn't see the raw, like full interview that Kara Swisher did with John Fetterman. Um, they're happy to just sort of spin. But when you can sort of see it with your own eyes, uh, it just should have everybody wondering what other things are they lying to me about? What other things are they making up? Um, and you will find on virtually every single story that they are constructing a false version of reality. Nobody can create a truly objective rendering of reality. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying they purport to be doing that. Um, and what they're doing is something very, very different. So if there's any takeaway from the story, um, it, is, it is that we are sort of living in a, a false reality created by the media. And um, it's, it's not helpful to anyone when stories like this emerge because we should have trust in media. I think the fourth estate is extremely important. Um, I'm like literally right here at the National Journalism Center. I think it's essential that we have a, a fair free press. Um, but you, when, when the trust dips, it's totally reasonable. I don't blame anybody for not trusting the media. In fact, you should distrust the media deeply. And that's really the lesson of the debate last night. Um, and the sad reality is that the media isn't doing anything, anything to improve and to rebuild the public's trust and to actually be better at its own job. Um, and that's what's most depressing. I just want to briefly raise once again, the just brazen hypocrisy here. And this is not to take anything away from the notion that I think we all feel 
uh, sympathy and that it was painful to watch on a just basic human level, the way that Fetterman operated and the fact that he was put up there to operate that way for the entire world to see last night. But think about the fact that the very same people who said that the unvaxxed and continue to argue, in fact, in policy, that the unvaxxed are not only fit not to hold any job, but to participate in any aspect of civil society, that they ought to be completely excommunicated from the world. But if you dare so much as to even question whether someone who is clearly ailing and may well not have the cognitive capacity, the mental acuity to serve in the purported world's most deliberative body, that makes you ableist and a bigot. It's just remarkable to witness that in real time. And just to on a tangent on the unvaxxed issue, I and I'm sure many of our viewers and listeners were hardened to see that New York State Supreme Court ruling that thousands of people who were thrown out of their jobs due to the vax mandates ought to be reinstated and with back pay as well. I hope that over the next year, we see a massive wave of movement to make whole the people whose lives were hopefully just temporarily wrecked as a consequence of those discriminatory and utterly asinine policies. Let's see what happens. Uh, perhaps a Republican red wave will shepherd in uh, such a sea change. So I, I'll make two very quick points, which admittedly are in some very mild degree of tension with one another. I, I want to go back to the parental rights thing because, you know, ever since Glenn Youngkin became the governor of Virginia in that fairly remarkable election just about a year ago now, there's been a lot of discussion about kind of the future of the GOP as kind of a parents' party, as a family party. There's been a lot of kind of writings and speeches given on what like a pro family economics works or it looks like, you know, American Compass, American Principles Project, all these various organizations are trying to put some like teeth on the bones. And I think on this podcast, we try to do that as well. So I think that's basically exactly right. Um, and what, are, what I think, too, again, to kind of go back to the Florida gubernatorial debate that I was there in person for Monday night, when these apparently Broward County Teachers Union people with like the pink pro-abortion t-shirts started like, you know, sitting down 20 minutes before the debate, 10 minutes after they were supposed to be in their seats. A friend of mine who I will, you know, keep his privacy once say his name, who was sitting next to me, basically looked over there. And first of all, I, I just have to say this. There were like no men there. It, it, it was like all women. And they all felt like a very specific demographic. This is like what my friend said to me. He was like, look, these are all just like those proverbial single 45, 50 year old cat ladies, people that kind of work their job and go back and have a cat. But you know, that stark dichotomy as to like what the progressive base is, as I as I kind of viscerally saw there, I I think possibly prepares like a very, very, very stark dichotomy, a stark contrast to what a meaningful kind of pro-nuclear family pro-family political agenda can look like. And that's going to ha you know, have ramifications for education policy. It's going to have ramifications for this, quote unquote, gender affirming care nonsense. It's going to have ramifications for actual kind of economic family policy payments for paid leave, child support. You know, the, you, can, you can take it very far, actually. But that really, I think, is kind of the proper lens through which conservative politicos and the GOP should be thinking about this. Um, you know, I, I was going to make a slightly different point there, but uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like I'm going to say it for next week at this point. So I'll just kind of cut myself off. Of it. All right. Well, full show people. Good job. <laughs> so on behalf of Emily, Ben and Josh, I'm Rachel Bovard, and we'll see you on the next Snack on Squad.